0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Kristen Surak to tell us all about her book titled The Golden Passport Global Mobility for Millionaires, published by Harvard University Press in 2023. This is a really interesting book. Um, And as I think Kristen's going to make a very persuasive case for, there might not be that many countries in the world that give out passports or citizenship or have different routes for obtaining those things beyond, for example, being born somewhere or having lived somewhere for quite a long time. But the impact of these things is rather interesting um, on a lot of different levels. So without giving too much of it away, um, I found this book really quite intriguing. So, Kristen, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about it.
0: Well, thank you very much for having me here. It's a real pleasure to be able to talk about um, this sort of work, which I find absolutely fascinating, this world of uh, golden passports or citizenship by investment.
1: It's a very evocative phrase, Golden Passport, Um, but before we get into it too deeply, would you mind starting us off with a bit of an introduction and I guess the sort of backstory of why you decided to write this?
0: Oh, sure. Well, um, let's see, I suppose since it's a book about citizenship, I should say up front I'm a US citizen, but while I was doing the project, I actually became a, a British citizen along the way, but to be honest, found the road a rather bumpy ride um i'd been traveling so much for my work that i actually didn't come under the, the 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 strictest interpretation of the of the law in terms of becoming a citizen i had to go through lawyers i had to pay a lot of you know even the bureaucratic fees are very very high so i ended up paying about 10,000 us dollars just to naturalize because i was living and in, in working in the uk um and very happily so so i I teach at the london school of economics in sociology and there i've been focusing quite a bit on um international migration mobility which has been one of the the key focuses of of my work within sociology and i got interested in this world of golden passports actually because i was working on a topic that was almost it seemed to me kind of the exact opposite. So I was um, doing a lot of work on uh, labor migration programs to bring in low-paid workers on a temporary basis, limited time period, and then they would have to return to their home countries at the end. These are often colloquially known as guest work policies. Um, so you come in, work for three years or five years, you know, often at minimum wage or so, and then you go home again, and very often under these programs, people have a hard time becoming citizens. So I was doing a project that was a big global comparison of these different forms of inclusion and exclusion all around the world, when at the same time, Malta had begun to sell citizenship. And so it was in the news all the time. And you heard all of these stories about um, what seemed to me to be almost the exact opposite of what I was studying, rather than low paid people who come to a country, work and have a hard time becoming citizens, these were very wealthy people who were donating to or investing in the country. Sometimes they had never even been to it and being granted citizenship. So I thought, oh, this is fascinating. This is this is a great comparison case. And you know maybe this can be the end of this big book on um, comparing guest programs around the world. And so I had the opportunity to go to basically an industry conference around this. And I realized, oh, my goodness, there's so much more going on here than just cash for passports. There's a whole industry behind this. There's countries that are really deeply involved in it, getting a significant proportion of their GDP through these programs. And that the reasons why people are doing this is often not what many assume that it's a much more complicated, much more fascinating world. So in the end, I still haven't written that big global comparison of guest work programs, but I did finally finish a book on golden passports or, um, Citizenship by investment, effectively, countries that offer citizenship to people, you know, sometimes for an investment or a donation of, you know, as little as a hundred thousand dollars, sometimes even less, um, and offer citizenship in return. <laughs>
1: Well, let's get into the book then that you've written. I think that's a very intriguing start. Um, And as obviously evidenced uh, in that answer already, there's some key terms here that we want to make sure we're clear on before we continue. So can you tell us what the difference is between things, for example, residence by investment or citizenship by investment? Kind of what are these things that we're talking about?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because people mix these up all of the time, but there's actually a very significant difference between residence by investment and citizenship by investment or golden visas and golden passports. So what are those in the first place? Well, you know, citizenship by invest. you know, in both cases, you might donate or invest in the country and they offer you something in return. Um, and in citizenship by investment, it's citizenship. And in residence by investment, it's, it's residence. But these are very, very different legal statuses. So, you know, for example, citizenship is a pretty sticky legal status. It's pretty hard to revoke. Um, once you naturalize, it's a difficult for a country to get rid of you unless, for example, you, have you know, lied on your application process. Whereas residence, it's not citizenship. It's just a residence permit for a country. It might be temporary residence, it might be permanent residence, but it's really just the ability to be there. Citizenship, like, you know, for example, is inheritable. Um, you can pass it down to future generations, whereas a residence permit isn't, it's just that person. And it can be easy to lose. So in residence by investment programs, golden visa programs, which you see in a lot of countries, about 50 countries around the world have these. Half the countries in the European Union have them. Very famous programs are, say, Portugal's golden visa, Spain's golden visas, Greece's golden visa, the U.S. has it, the U.K. used to have it. Canada um, has had a version of this in the past. These sorts of programs, it's just the possibility to go and move to the country. It's its not citizenship in, in that sense. Um, and on, in addition... With citizenship, so you get, so it's hard to revoke. Um, It's passed down through the family. And it also enables you to apply for a passport very often. Now, citizenship isn't the same as passport and a passport isn't the same as citizenship. But most of the time, especially in this world, the two are treated interchangeably. And so you can, you know, get a passport, and an important identity document, a travel document from that country. Whereas with residents by investment, you don't get a passport, you get a visa in a passport. And that's very different. Now, a lot of people think that residents by investment programs, well, you know, they're residents in the country, of course, they're just going to all become citizens. You know, Portugal's golden visa program is really just a golden passport program in disguise. But to be honest, in terms of my research, I found that that really isn't always the case. So in some cases. With a residence by investment program, citizenship is not a possibility. The UAE has a popular golden visa program, you can't become a citizen. Thailand has a popular golden visa program, you can't become a citizen. You know, it's not always the case. And a lot of people who apply for residence by investment golden visas don't even want citizenship. In fact, if you come from a country that doesn't allow dual nationality, like China, the stakes are kind of high if you naturalize somewhere else. You might not want to do that, especially, you know, depending on the business that you're doing or the sort of interest that you have. So a lot of people who go for residence by investment don't even want to naturalize in the end um, as well. Now, so so in that sense, in terms of the rights, in terms of the longevity, in terms of um, the possibilities that the programs offer, residence by investment, those golden visa programs that you find all over the world are very different the citizenship by investment programs, which are much smaller um, in terms of numbers. But also, of course, with citizenship, you become a member of the country, you know, so there's more at stake, you know, especially because it's much harder to revoke than residents. Mm.
1: No, that's a very helpful distinction. Um, so thank you for explaining it so clearly. To finish off kind of that foundational information, you've told us a bit about the scale and the size of the residency aspect, um, how common is citizenship by investment in terms of number of countries or number of people that pursue that?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. And from, from an academic point of view, it's one that's not completely straightforward to answer. So you can look at the legal provisions that are out there in the world. And currently, just over 20 countries have legal provisions that enable a person to naturalize in exchange for making a set investment in a country, or a set contribution um, to a government, but once the, but they don't all process applications. They don't all naturalize people through those um, legal streams. So, for example, Samoa has this sort of law on the books. But it, and it's been around for you know nearly ten years now. But nobody's naturalized through it. In fact, they've only had one application submitted, and that person revoked their application even before processing was ended. So you know it has a law in the books, but it doesn't really operate a program in practice. And if you really want to think about operational programs, programs that are naturalizing at least a few dozen, if not a couple hundred people per year through these options, it's about ten to twelve countries really dominate the field. Um so, so in that sense, it, it it is small in terms of the number of countries that operate it. And on top of it, the number of people who gain citizenship through these means is relatively small as well. It's about, you know, an estimate around 20,000 applications are approved each year. But because people can bring their family members along as well, it turns out to be about 50,000 people naturalized through these schemes as well, you know, which is pretty small when you think about a global population of about 7 billion people, 50,000 or so. But when you it, the number gets bigger when you begin to put it in perspective, because to be honest, naturalization, you know, gaining citizenship after birth is pretty rare, even in places where, um, you know, you would expect to find it a lot, like, like the U.S. The U.S. has a population of over 300 million people. It has um, over 50 million people um, who are U.S. citizens were born abroad, so they naturalize. But the actual rate of naturalization is less than a million people per year, where, where you'd expect to find it. A lot of countries make it nearly impossible to naturalize as well. So no, the number of people globally, China makes it nearly impossible to naturalize, for example. Um, you know, number of people who naturalize globally is, is really, really minuscule. And then on top of it, if you think about the people who go for these programs, which are usually people with enough money to afford it, who come from outside of the North Atlantic, outside of the Euro- Europe and, and North America or so, it's even, you know, it's an even smaller proportion um, of humans globally. And so in that, when, when you put it in perspective, the number who are going for these programs, wealthy people who are from the global south in general, um, it's actually, a you know, a higher, a higher rate it make, it becomes more interesting. And there's a lot of interesting stories to tell about the way that globalization operates through looking at it um, through these lens, this lens in the first place.
1: And I think we're now going to get into some of those um, now that we have an idea of what we're talking about um, and kind of the scale of it. So given that there's a relatively small range of countries that do this, but there's it's not like it's just kind of one type of country. There's a bunch of things going on here. So, how, when, and where did this start? You know, what, what it take us back to the origins of golden passports?
0: So the the story that I tell in in the book begins in the 1980s and 1990s, really looking at what is the origin of this global market in citizenship. Now, if if one wants to look at simply Countries or places that sell citizenship. You can go all the way back to ancient Greece and find cases of um, individual Greek city states who are naturalizing people who, you know, made significant financial contributions um, to that city state. You can find it in Rome actually quite a bit. You know, it wasn't too terribly uncommon to um, make a person a citizen um, of the Roman Empire um, for for their financial um, or economic contributions. There, you can find it also all over the case, all over the place, and. Medieval European city states, as well, depended on you know the particular or the particular cities depended on the particular cities. But some cities in in medieval Europe, you know, regularly naturalized merchants and people who donated to the city um, made a significant financial contribution. And this you can find even cases then in say the nineteenth and early twentieth century. So like Liechtenstein um, had a set amount that it would naturalize a person for. Um, that it was a program it was a legal provision I think in the late 19th century and it went up until the 1950s or so so in that sense you know this sort of thing isn't as a legal provision isn't too terribly new even if it hasn't always been so common depends on depends on when and where you're looking um, oh even even Latin America um, South America had um, in the 19th century the, or, or the early 18th century had these or, or early 19th century had these sorts of provisions um, as well. But what I'm interested in in the book is understanding this global market where you have um, kind of a mass market product um, connecting and possibilities of um, buyers selecting among different country options. Then those different countries are competing against each other. And the story I tell in tracing those origins goes back to the 1980s and 1990s, um, especially Hong Kong. When in 1984 it became clear that Britain was not was not only going to return the the new territories to China, but also Hong Kong Island itself, which wasn't you know the the case at the get go, and so that meant that at that point in time China in the 1980s was a much more um, sort of classically communist country, and you had a lot of capitalist um, profit makers and business people in Hong Kong being very worried about what was going to happen. Um, to them, so they began to look for exit options, and there was this bubbling market um, in effectively passports. There was even a, um, a magazine called The Emigrant um, that sort of advertised different exit options if you were leaving Hong Kong or looking for, looking to leave Hong Kong, um, that were available. And you would have things like some people at embassies would give you some passports. You had different, you know, some countries had sort of were kind of doing this at maybe a legal provision, but it, maybe it wasn't so clear. Maybe the money wasn't going back to the country. Maybe it was ending up in offshore bank accounts. You know, you would have cases of, um, There was a lot of corruption going on so that when, you know, if a government was selling passports and then the next government came into power, they would just, you know, erase all the passports. It was a legal, illegal practice and, um, you know, basically cancel all the citizenship. So at that point in time, there was a big demand for these things. But the quote unquote product, this possibility of easy citizenship through making a financial contribution or, or investment It wasn't very stable. The the future security of these things wasn't sure. And there were a lot of dodgy practices. So it was sort of it was possible, but it was kind of a, you know, sort of a wild west scene at that point in time. Now that began to change into a much more formalized market in the 2000s. And the story I tell in the book goes back to St. Kitts, which had a legal provision um, since 1984. It got independence from the UK. And one of the first things that it did was to start a program that offered citizenship in St. Kitts in in exchange or recognition of um, a real estate investment um, in the country. I think there was also a government bond option um, that, that could lead to naturalization as well. So they were doing some of the stuff. Already, but what happened in, in the 2000s was there was a, a private company that went in and um, worked with the government to try to formulate a much more sort of stable and mass marketable prod, product, in effect, setting out clearer price points, um, creating uh, a more formalized um, application system, um, making it um sort of much much more standardized, they created a, a division of labor in terms of how the assessment process went through, which is important as well. Because one of the things with citizenship is that uh, you know, of course, um the only entity that can grant or produce the product of, of citizenship in the contemporary world is basically. The state, the executive branch of the state, um, you can't have a you know a secondary market in citizenship. I can't sell my citizenship to somebody else and have it count unless that state stands behind it. So only the state can produce the product, but the state is also the rule maker of the market. So there becomes that question of well, how do you trust it? How do you know that it's not just going to have sovereign default and cancel all the citizenships. And when the new government comes through, or just decide this is all, you know we're not doing this any any longer, just cancel them all. So it helped in in the early 2000s to have a more formalized process, a greater division of labor, even including um, private companies getting involved, especially private due diligence companies getting involved to assess, check, and evaluate um, these things. And as it began to do that, you know whether or not a person thinks you know it's okay to sell citizenship or not it meant that it became a much more stable product because other actors in the market could trust it when you had a much more formalized bureaucratic process it was no longer just a, a cash for passports transaction it made it into that legal side it was much more emphasized in the issuance of citizenship and that made it a much more stable legal status it made it much harder to revoke um as well, that meant that people in the market um could trust it, so that you could get you know, for example, um the big four accountancies seeing that, okay, this has enough legal stability, we can begin to offer this to our clients, and that was a real game changer um, that it became. Um, no longer sort of, you know, just the cash for passports trade, but a really, you know, formalized product. And what was interesting then was it became a big money maker. There were many more applications. You could, you know, have big advertising. You knew sort of what what boxes to tick. You knew what the um, assessment process was, was going to be. And other countries began to get on board, sort of copying that model that St. Kitts put into place in, in the um, early 2000s. And you know, you turning it into a big revenue stream. So we see that sort of model spread across the Caribbean, um, so that there were then five countries in the Caribbean offering citizenship by investment, and then eventually that same um, service provider who revamped the Saint Kitts program went over to Malta and says, "Oh, hey, you know, we've got this. We've got this model. We can, you know, can we put it in place here?" And actually, that was a big difference too because they they were no longer just offering citizenship in a small Caribbean country. And, you know, it could be useful because you get visa-free access to the EU. But they were then offering citizenship in an EU member state. And Malta then basically joined Cyprus, which had, you know, had its own program sort of grown in-house um, uh, since the, um, about, you know, they had the legal provision in about 2000 and, Three, it began to um, kind of formulate into a program around 2007 and then really got to the, the, the sort of style that it would be using for a while in about 2011. So, Cyprus is a little bit different because it was the government itself that developed its citizenship by investment program. Whereas, up until that point, other countries, had, had, it was really governments working with service providers um you know intermediaries people who can you know sell this as a product to their clients who who were developing these sorts of schemes and so that that however um has begun to you know th- those sorts of countries have begun to change over time then in terms of what what they what kind of players are in the scene So if it started off, you know, as small microstates, microstates being countries with a population of less than a million. So, you know, imagine the country of St. Kitts. Its population is 55,000 people. It's like a small town. You could put all of this, all the population of St. Kitts into a pretty big football stadium and they would all fit. For example, it's tiny. Um, Since, you know, about the past 10 years, there's been this big change in terms of bigger countries getting on board. So since about 2016, we've seen countries like Turkey, Egypt, Jordan. Cambodia has had a program since the 1990s. It sort of operates in its own field. Um, but But especially in the Middle East, we've seen bigger countries getting on board with these kind of schemes as well, which has meant some changes in terms of the operation of the global market.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about kind of why those bigger countries have started to get involved and what some of those changes have been?
0: Well, they look a little bit different from from the small countries, the microstates, in part because, you know, so Egypt, Jordan, um, but Turkey is the number one um, country right now, um, have sizable populations of their own. So with people who were naturalizing in, in small island countries, for the most part, they weren't going. There were some exceptions. So for example, a lot of Russians had um, sort of holiday homes in Cyprus, would spend a bit of time there as well, maybe naturalize on top of it. But for the most part, with, with a small, you know, small island country, these wealthy naturalizers weren't looking to go there. In fact, if they didn't have to go there at all ever, it was... Much more beneficial to them because they didn't even have to, you know, bother if they wanted to. Some people would go, and you know, check out the investment, check out the place. But many people wouldn't. They were simply busy or, you know, running their businesses, et cetera. Um, so, what's different with with these big Middle Eastern countries is that you know initially they were basically naturalizing people already in the country. So you could have like a big, for example, Palestinian business population, you know, big Palestinian population of business people who haven't had other opportunities to naturalize in a place like Jordan or Egypt, because simply naturalization is very, very challenging in these places. Turkey as well, you know, it attracted, you know, a lot of, um, Refugees from places like Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and refugees aren't all just, you know, you know, very very impoverished people. You can also get successful business people who end up leaving their country because of political instability or war and the like. And so, in the Middle East, these programs started off, and it's still an important segment of the people they're naturalizing. But naturalizing foreigners who are already in the country, but were simply successful and wealthy, and it was basically a way of, you know, in effect, kind of nationalizing wealth in the country um, in the first place. So, in that sense, they they looked a little bit different from from the island microstates. But they've also reached out as well. So, for example, um, Dubai is a big hub. Um, it's probably the biggest hub right now in terms of buyers um, looking, looking at these options, looking at these schemes. Dubai is a place where 90% of the population is foreign, which is kind of hard to imagine. If you if you haven't been out there, you're not used to you know, thinking of those terms. Imagine a country or the UAE, United Arab Emirates, 90% of the population is foreign. And they're all there, almost all of them are there based on a work permit. In recent years, about three years ago, the UAE started a golden visa program as a way to, you know, try to keep talent in the country. You can get a ten-year residence permit now, but still, traditionally in the UAE, it has not been possible to retire there. But almost all of the private sector labor, not only the, you know, the the poorly paid um, workers in in dangerous um, places, building, you know, high rises and skyscrapers that that are often covered in the news, but you know, almost all of the doctors, almost all of the bankers, almost all of the lawyers are foreign and have no opportunity to retire there, even though they might have lived and worked there their whole life. So many people there are looking for um, options outside. And so the, so there's been a lot of demand, for example, for citizenship in Turkey by um, foreigners working in Dubai, you know, whether they're, you know, for example, say Pakistani Um you know, who, who are there and, you know, doing well as a CEO of a company looking for um, to improve their, their options.
1: So given that we know a bit now about kind of which countries are doing this, um, you've started to tell us a little bit about kind of the, who is trying to use these methods, who's applying for residency or citizenship by investment. Um, can you tell us a bit more about kind of what you found in terms of the 20,000 or so people every year that are seeking to do this?
0: Yeah, it's not just it's 20,000 applications, which when you include their family members, it's about 50,000 people. And one of the things that I found interesting in doing the research was that, you know, if you if you listen to a lot of the media around this, it's sort of like everybody's a criminal or a tax evader, and that's why they want to do it. But what I found doing a lot of interviews around the world, and I went to 16 countries, and I talked to over 500 people to kind of figure out how this market works. One of the interesting things was, you know, most of the reasons why people go for these options is pretty mundane. You know, they're looking, a lot of people are looking for mobility. Um, But within that, there's a lot of really interesting tweaks and turns and complexities um, as well. So if you look at countries of origin, um, before COVID, China was number one. China doesn't allow dual citizenship, but still, you know, it was worth the risk for enough people from China to go for these programs. Number two um, was Middle East, um, and then number three was um Russians in general. Um so so it's basically if you look looked, you know, broadly across the world, it would be um, you know, people from outside of the North Atlantic, outside of, outside of the West, with quote unquote bad passports, living under authoritarian regimes, kind of uncertain about the future, who would look into these as options. But the number one they would think they would you know would look for would be, for most people, would be mobility, visa free access. So, for example, if you're if you're from Pakistan. Um, you you know, if you're you're from, you know, say Germany or so, you can go to about 180, 190 countries visa free. If you're from Pakistan, you get about 35 or so. Now, you could be, you know, happen to have been born in Pakistan, have a PhD, be a successful engineer, and you're still going to have only those 35 countries. And if you're applying for a visa somewhere else, it's going to usually take Oh, you know some time several weeks you you know you might not know if you get a multi multiple entry visa or a single entry visa if you're a business person and you have to travel you know be in you know that place to you know close that deal or check those factories or or do that sort of thing tomorrow you know it, it really doesn't work so a lot of reasons in um, the first instance was mobility but within that mobility it, there's some some interesting tweaks and in, as well. So mobility can be, you know mean instant access, you know visa-free travel, but it can also mean staying where one is rather than trying to go somewhere. So for example, um, there you know there's a lot of um, Venezuelan oil engineers out there in the world doing things, many working in in the GCC, but for a while, Venezuela was not renewing passports and not issuing passports. But if you're working abroad, where do you put your work visa you have to have a passport to do it so some you know Venezuelan oil engineers for example would go for citizenship by investment you know a small amount of money given you know if they're working in you know for example Saudi Arabia um, you know so that they could have a document to put their work visa in so they could stay where they are for example they, but with mobility as well you know it really is visa-free access and the important thing to keep in mind is that for the most part, these new naturalized citizens aren't moving, you know they're moving across borders, but not necessarily moving to the countries where they're becoming new citizens. Very few, especially in the small island microstates, actually move. Um, they might set, set up a second base, they might have a vacation home, um, spend some time there, but um, in terms of mobility, it's really um, access um, outside. and that often means visa-free access to the EU. Um, is is a very important point for in a lot of these programs. Hmm. Uh, people also want it's not only mobility in the present; it can also be mobility in the future. In which case, the new citizenship becomes effectively an insurance policy. Um, so, if you're from an authoritarian regime, whether it's you know China, we've seen you know massive changes in Russia. That's been a you know since the invasion of the Ukraine. You know, if you're from Syria. If you're from Iran, um, you know, etc. If you're from, uh, you know, Afghanistan, you you might or Vietnam, you might not know what the regime is going to do next. It might be okay for now, but who knows about the future? Um, So a lot of people are looking for an insurance policy against an uncertain future, particularly if they're under an authoritarian regime. Though not only. And we've seen you know, an interesting change, in, especially since COVID, but also even before with the rise of this hyper politicization of um, politics within the U.S., where there's been a lot of what, what people in the industry called um, Armageddon Americans, Americans who are U.S. citizens who are just, you know, they, they love they loved Trump, hate Biden, or loved Biden, hate Trump, or whatever. But they're, you know, they're not sure about the political future of the country, or they're sick of both parties, and, you know, what's going on with the the next election cycle. And they're looking to expand their options, um, and potentially get out as well. Um, And so, a lot of people see it as an insurance policy, and then, of course, you can think about the different grades of insurance policy. So, citizenship in a Caribbean country can be a hundred thousand U.S. dollars, can be even a little less for a single person. Citizenship in, you know, for example, in Malta right now is probably, if you include all the fees, etc., it's just shy of a, of a million U.S. dollars, but it makes you a EU citizen with the right to not only go to the EU but live at anywhere in the EU. that you might want, you know, you can effectively, if you're a citizen of Malta, you can effectively move to France and get, you know, pretty much, you know, similar rights as any other French, as any French citizen as well. So it's a very um, powerful um, uh, insurance policy, but one that costs a little bit more than others as well. People, but, you know, so there's mobility in the present, mobility in the future. Sometimes people, sometimes quality of life. People often think about their children, especially if they're successful in business. They're trying to make things, uh, make a better life for their children. And I surprisingly found this coming out in my interviews as well. People would talk about, you know, they want to put their kids in schools, um, for example, in Europe, but want to have the mother being able, you know, and not just go with a. Student visa, but have the possibility for the mother to go and live and be close to the kids as well. So, say they were looking at private schools in Switzerland, they might invest in citizenship in Malta um, so that the mother and the kids can be there um, as well. I even ha- talked to a person whose parents um, wanted them to have more job opportunities in the EU. So, they went for citizenship in Malta. Um, but oftentimes with successful business people, they're thinking about a brighter future for their kids. And if they've had a quote, if they have a quote unquote bad passport, or if they're uncertain about their government, if they want to open up possibilities in the West, then that can be a motive, too. And then finally, mm-hmm. there's business opportunities. Um, it can be, you know, so, for example, if you're a citizen of, of Turkey you 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 don't get um added import taxes if you're running an import export business with the eu you simply pay VAT tax you can lower your tax burden for example if you're trying to do um, business in certain countries it can be easier to open bank accounts if you have citizenship um for example in in Malta as well you know so there's you know really depends on the person in the case but there can be various business opportunities that can be opened up um because of your citizenship, even, for example, say getting a mortgage on the house, if you're, if you're Iranian living outside of Iran, uh, because of US sanctions, a lot of banks won't want to bank you. Um, so if you want to, you know, get a mortgage or get a loan for a car or whatever, um, especially if you're making good money, it can be um, getting um, citizenship by investment can be one way to do it. Um, now, that often turns into questions about tax too. And a lot of, I often get asked, you know, aren't these all just tax evaders? And that tax is a really complicated thing. It really depends on the person's situation. But if, you know, the kind of the big picture story on this is, you know, if citizenship by investment were um, sort of the silver bullet to not pay taxes anymore, the numbers would be through the roof. <laughs> you would have far more, for example, U.S. citizens doing this. Um, the U.S. has the greatest number of millionaires. The U.S. has the greatest number of billionaires. There's been an increase in interest since COVID, but you know the numbers of, uh, of uh, U.S. citizens doing this are minuscule because basically, if you want to lower your tax burden, you can structure yourself and do all sorts of things without citizenship. You don't need citizenship at all to open trusts or foundations or all all sorts of other things that people use to. Um, Protect their wealth, um, particularly from tax. So, tax is complicated. Um, you know, there can be some tax benefits, but this is really not a silver bullet um, in general. And it, it, you know, it's sort of yeah, it's it's a it's a really tricky one in terms of that. But interestingly, too, in thinking about these these rights, these potential business opportunities, it can highlight. An interesting wrinkle that I found in that sometimes, actually, you can get more rights as a foreigner than you do as a citizen. So, for example, you know, if you're a, you know a Vietnamese business person building a business in Vietnam, um, you might not trust the government you know it's an authoritarian regime you might be kind of working with the government but you're, but you're not quite sure maybe there's a change in regime maybe maybe the person you've been contacting or, or whatever falls out with with the government etc um, the government may, may want to try to seize your assets and if you're a citizen of that country they'll they can take you to those courts of that country and you might not trust the courts as well but if you're a business person you um, Doing business in your home country, and particularly if it's an authoritarian regime, if you get a citizenship abroad and run your company under that, you can access or you can make claims to access bilateral um, investment treaties um, and try to claim access to international arbitration. So rather than, you know, if the Vietnamese government tries to seize your assets and then you try to take it to a Vietnamese court, which may not be completely independent, you can take it into, you can make a claim to take it into international arbitration, which might be a more independent court system. But you can only do that if you're a foreigner, if you've gotten citizenship abroad. So sometimes you can get more rights as a foreigner um, in your home country than you would otherwise as a citizen. Now, all of this, when I started doing research on the book, which was about eight years ago, was was kind of the story that I saw over and over around the world. But then COVID-19 happened. And that created a lot of interesting changes in demand, because a lot of people suddenly couldn't move. U.S. citizens who before, you know, never really had to worry too much about global mobility. Suddenly, couldn't just get on a plane and hop over to Europe just because they wanted to. So COVID-19 brought in, and then a lot of people on top of it were very concerned about what their governments were doing and how they were handling the pandemic. You know, so COVID-19 saw the huge boom in the number of U.S. citizens looking at these options, um, either because they couldn't move and they wanted to hedge their bets or they weren't happy with what the government was doing. So a lot of people... Um, for, for example, um, in the global south, like um, say wealthy or successful um, Indian citizens or Pakistani citizens or Filipino citizens, um, based based abroad, wondering what they would be doing next. They were also not necessarily happy with how their governments were handling COVID. Um, so you saw a lot of people beginning to search not just for mobility in the present or a hedge against the future, but thinking midterm. If I had to go somewhere for six months, if I had to go somewhere for one year where would I go? And that sort of thinking is is still there in the market today. Um, there's been a real change in the sort of future calculations of people who are looking at these options.
1: Mm. So given those multiple motivations, um, and how that looks to be changing, you've mentioned a few times, obviously, the market for this. So clearly, there are people kind of making a lot of money off of this. Can you tell us more about what that market looks like?
0: Sure. There's a whole citizenship industry around this as well. Now, it's one of those things that, you know, international migration, and I, I've studied a lot of international migration beyond this. A lot of it costs money, and a lot of it has people making money off of people moving people across borders, sort of migration industries, as, as it's often known in the academic literature. And there, there's a whole one around this as well. Um, in, in the first instance, it's basically people who help, paperwork, because if you're going to apply for citizenship in a country, you know, there's a lot of paperwork that's involved in these programs. Um, In terms of the due diligence and background checks, you might have to show what's going on with your bank accounts and tax statements and all of this. And it can be tricky, actually, to make sure that the paperwork produced in one country can be read and assessed by the bureaucrats in another country. And that trickiness of kind of almost translating the paperwork between those two bureaucratic systems is kind of in the first instance, what citizenship providers do for their clients. You know, so it could be, for example, you can have a wealthy Bangladeshi business person who doesn't have a birth certificate. Which can be complicated. Now, how do you do that? You have to get police reports or you have to get, you know, other sorts of documentation to show who this person is, et cetera. Maybe maybe they're from a country where there's a lot of cash transactions and you don't, you know, tax isn't efficiently collected by the government, so you don't have tax statements and that sort of thing. So a lot of what these service providers do in the first instance is sort of paperwork, you know, making their clients' paperwork look clear and accessible to bureaucrats in the country. But there's a lot more that goes on as well. In fact, there's there's a whole in the, the research I did, I was able to trace out a whole supply chain um, of different service providers that will connect a potential buyer to a to a potential country. And oftentimes, the buyers don't even know that whole chain of service providers. It's often three, four, five layers thick, depending on on the nature of it. Um, well, now, part of it's part of that is because um, it, you know it's a it's a cross border phenomenon in the first place. Say you're in China and you want to naturalize in, you know, in Antigua, an island in in the Caribbean. Um, You you know, you've got a lot of complicated paperwork that's all in Chinese. Um, So you might go to a a service provider in China whom you can trust. And you probably want a person you you can really trust because you expose a lot of business information and, well, the Chinese government doesn't um, really allow dual citizenship in the first place. But you also need somebody in Antigua to submit the application who's licensed by the government to do that and to follow up in case anything happens. If there's if they need more information, you know, if they ask, what is this document? You know, how you, you know, why? Why does this marriage certificate look like this? You know, if something gets subs, you need somebody on the ground there as well. So you usually have at least two links in the chain, if not more Um that are going through. And then you also have, you know, real estate agents who, who get money off of this, because oftentimes people can um, invest in real estate and and um, make money from the programs. You know, there's independent due diligence um, providers that, that get paid by governments to assess these programs. So, um, you know, you get this big industry um, making money off of these things. And sometimes, you know, depending on where you are, you might pay, you, you know, if you're thinking about doing a program, you might Get a lawyer and they charge you five thousand to ten thousand dollars to do it but if you have a very complicated case you might end up paying ten a hundred thousand dollars or even more um, in fees to these intermediaries so for the intermediaries themselves it's pretty good business they make quite a quite a good buck um, off of this off of this trade but also because you get these long supply chains going across borders it means that this industry is very hard to regulate. So, you know, the example I gave of the Chinese person, maybe in Shanghai, who's looking to naturalize in Antigua, they might get hooked up with an intermediary who's, you know, trying to scam them or or whatever. Maybe they're promising something that Antigua can't offer. Now, Antigua might care about that, but because it's a small island and, you know, the sovereign is, you know, sets the rules and controls things only within that country, it's very hard for them to regulate What's going on in on the China side of it? So, um, so these intermediaries cross borders, but they also benefit them as well because, you know, they can be you know doing something halfway around the world, um, but the country issuing citizenship has you know can have a pretty hard time controlling what just what those business practices are.
1: Hmm. Very interesting um, to think about kind of all of those individual pieces. And of course, this is one of the points where I point listeners to the book that goes into all sorts of really intricate detail um, on the economics and finance of that. If that's something you want more detail about, it's in the book. Um, But I'd love to ask you to tell us a little bit more about kind of a different piece of the book, if you don't mind. Um, You've told us about sort of countries that have these programs or that kind of have tried versions of these programs, even if, as in the case of Samoa, no one's quite done it. Why might a country want a program like this, maybe even go down some of the initial steps, but then not actually create a program like this?
0: Uh, That's an interesting question. It's sort of the dog that didn't bark. What are the failed cases um, as well? I suppose in, in the first instance, you know, it's necessary to overcome internal opposition. And that can, you know, be done, whether it's negotiated behind closed doors or, um, you know, if there's some sort of internal opposition that has to be overcome in the first place. But what's been interesting to watch in the past couple of years is, you know, a number of countries have decided they would start doing this. They begin to talk about a program, they begin to formulate it, and then they've shut down. Or they maybe even kind of launch it, maybe accept a couple of applications and then they shut down. Why? And the big player in this scene so far has been the European Parliament, um, as well as the European Commission. So especially for countries that are in um, kind of the the halo of the European Union, especially those that are in the accession process, who are hoping to become members of the European Union, they've been under a lot of pressure in recent years. About their programs. Um, so the European European Union has, has begun to say, well, okay, you're thinking about selling citizenship, or even you've even just started selling citizenship. But you know, if you become a member of the EU, you've just sold EU citizenship or potential future EU citizenship to a whole bunch of people. And we don't even know who they are. Um, and so they've been pressuring these countries in the accession process. So um, Moldova, for example. Kind of, you know, was starting was kind of getting off the ground, and then it was EU pressure saying you have to get rid of your program if you want to continue on that path to joining the EU. Um, similar, similar process with Montenegro. It got a little bit of a, a lease on um, extension on on the program because uh, COVID um, slowed down its processing, but it, it ended its program earlier this year, largely due to EU pressure um, around it. Um, so the EU has been um, pressuring a lot of countries in its in its orbit, in effect, and then on top of it, you know, a country can can kind of design it, but not not really market it, um, not have the right price point. Um, in in a way, actually, countries that want to be successful, especially if they're small, they need to kind of connect to that industry I was describing before of like of these s- service providers or lawyers or wealth managers who have access to clients to get the word word out and advertise these things as possible. And, you know, it has become a competitive global market. So, you know, what what I've seen very commonly is countries will price their quote-unquote product, their, their citizenship, make the investment amount higher than what uh, people could get in other places for a lower price. So, for example, Turkey, um, it started off um, in 2016, launched a program, it was a $1 U.S. dollars investment. At that same time, for a million U.S. dollars, you could become a citizen in Malta. You know, so why pay for a million? Why pay a million dollars to become a citizen in Turkey and get 110 countries visa free when you can become a citizen in Malta, get like 180 countries visa free, and be a an EU citizen for the same price? So it wasn't until they dropped the price that it it began to take off. You know, it's been similar. Europe was was um, is very very expensive. It's a very small number of people. Or Egypt um it's very very expensive it's been a very small number of people who've naturalized through the egyptian program precisely because of it and so we have seen is the development of these kind of market dynamics around price and countries that want to compete you know generally have to look at what what are the offerings within that market um to try to bring it into alignment with what buyers are are expecting
1: hmm. I mean, in a lot of ways, that's incredibly logical, but we don't necessarily think of countries thinking about citizenship in that way. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting to kind of see that play out. Um, Speaking of kind of what we do or don't expect, obviously, the idea of citizenship by investment is that someone wants the citizenship and they pay that amount of money to the country, and that money benefits the country, right? That's why they're doing this. You talked, uh, mentioned briefly earlier kind of the benefit to national GDP, for example. But that's obviously to some extent kind of a hope or an expectation. Does that actually go to plan? Does the purported economic benefit of inviting investment with this um, golden passport actually benefit the countries doing it?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, because, well, I mean, when when I started doing this research, I was I was agnostic in terms of, you know, should you know, this question of should countries have a program or should they not have a program? I, you know, that wasn't my question. My question was, how does this work? And if a country is saying that, you know, we're going to implement this program because of the economic benefits, then a real significant question is, Is it really doing it? Is it paying off in the way that it's promised? Now, in some of the countries, in some countries like Vanuatu, St. Gitts, Dominica, the programs are more than 10 percent of GDP, which is massive. Even in places, you know, Cyprus shut down its program because of corruption that was exposed by Al Jazeera. Um, Malta in in its first program, um, which ran for several years, it was still between three and almost five percent of GDP, which is Still, really significant. If you think about the case of, say, the U.S., the farming sector in the U.S. is less than one percent of GDP. <laughs> yeah, so but, but people still care. Put it a lot of so so this can be still be a really significant part of um, a country's revenue, particularly if it's it's a very small um, micro state. However, it, in many many cases, um, the the programs could be better designed to bring economic the economic benefits promise, there's a lot of leakage that goes off along the side um, in terms of the potential of these programs and the, the amount of money coming in, in part structured by that citizenship industry that I, I mentioned before. So a lot of money flows back to service providers in terms of commissions. doesn't really enter the country in the first place. You can get things like, um, you know, if you invest... In real estate, so you invest $200,000 in in real estate, you can become a citizen of a country, but that real estate project might get started. It might be, for example, a hotel development where you own a timeshare that's supposed to build the tourism infrastructure of a country sounds really good on paper. You know, that tourism infrastructure can generate local jobs and bring in tourist dollars as well. And for a microstate, that's a really important lifeline for many of them. Um, But it could be that developer just, you know, begins the building, takes a lot of investment, begins the building, and then stops, never completes. You know, you still have your citizenship, but that country has not benefited because that investment project, that hotel that should be bringing in tourists, that should be generating more local employment, was never completed. And there's been a lot of cases of that, um, sort of money going off on the side, these real estate projects that never complete, real estate that's over overvalued, etc. cetera, um, that um, is is really unfortunate in terms of the economic potential economic benefits
1: um, that the programs um, can bring so what then is the future of this what where do you think this is all going
0: well you know i in general it's it's a pretty cheap way for countries to get you know, in effect, what looks like foreign direct investment. Um, you know, if it's if it's money, and there's two ways this can be structured. One can be, you know, you invest in the country in a business, real estate, or whatever, and then you get citizenship. Or you could donate to the government. And you know, if the government is is very well run um, and plans very well, the donations to the government can be um, a very effective way of of developing the programs. And in fact, some countries have used the the monies to pay off IMF loans, have improved their um, Economic um, stability as well, so there there have been success stories coming out of this too. So in terms of offerings, it's probably only going to grow, and in terms of demand, it's also only going to grow as well because there's um, big inequalities in citizenship, and I think that's one of the interesting things in looking at this scene as well because you know it's small in terms of you know actual numbers, actual countries, but there's a lot that Looking at it tells us about the way globalization operates. So, you know, it's a big, you know, one of the big stories in it is looking at the way inequality operates. And here we can see inequality in citizenship, not just between the haves and the have nots, the people who can afford these programs and people who can't, but in between countries in terms of what citizenship gets you. It's that intersection of inequality between countries and inequality within countries that really produces demand for these things. But in thinking about the way inequality operates, and then you've got the inequalities between powerful countries that control the value of these um, programs. So it's the European Union and the United States that have a huge amount of influence over this. Um, But you get small microstates that kind of hustle in a way, figuring out what they can do within, within this world in order to bring in some sort of revenue. And it's important to remember here too that countries always select migrants. They always select in terms of mobility, who can come in, who gets visa-free access. And that's usually a version of an economic rationale. Countries are very reluctant to give visa-free access to citizens of countries where the GDP is significantly lower than their own. And it doesn't matter, you know, if that citizen is likely to overstay or not. You know, I had a colleague, um, at a university where I was teaching who was, um, uh, Harvard PhD. She was um, employed at a a top flight US school, but she was from Nigeria. She had a Nigerian passport. She was invited to give a keynote talk in France. And she started to apply for the the visa three months in advance. She had to show her contract. She had to show her bank statements. She had to reveal a lot about herself just to try to travel to France to give a keynote speech at a university. Um, And France in the end didn't get her the visa in time and she couldn't go. So that Level of things, you, you know, because they're saying, oh, you're Nigerian, you're going to overstay because, um, you know, the average income in Nigeria is, is you know, below the, one, below the one in France, in effect. So, this, this level of equality, what that means in terms of a global world, this can shed a lot of light in terms of how that happens or what are those dynamics. It also reminds us that citizenship is not just about the rights that we get within a country. It's also about the rights you get outside of a country. And for citizenship by investment, these golden passports, it's those extraterritorial rights of citizenship that are really important. And in a globalized world, it's really important to keep those in mind because citizenship is a sticky status. You know, it, we, it follows us wherever we go. Wherever we are in the world, we're a citizen of that country or multiple countries um, that we're a citizen of it follows us. But because it's that those rights outside of a country that citizenship gives us, that the, that is what the value of citizenship by investment lies in. That means there's a big geopolitics to this, too. It means that, you know, the value of a country's citizenship is determined largely by the EU or the US. Are they getting visa-free access to the EU? Is the US countenancing their program or not? And so what's been very interesting in watching this, this scene, for example, is that the U.S. can determine the citizenship policies of other countries. Um, you know, so if it's kind of, you know, it's like kind of mind blowing to think about. Oh, countries are being economic actors and competing against other countries for citizens. You know, in a way, it's also kind of mind blowing to think that a global superpower can determine who a country can naturalize or not. But for example, since Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, the U.S. has um, pressured the five countries in the Caribbean as well as Malta not to naturalize. Russians, whether or not they support the regime, no matter you know where they stand on that, they cannot naturalize Russians through their citizenship by investment program. Otherwise, the U.S. will will come down on them. Um, uh, even though the U.S. will still grant, you know, have retained for itself the right to decide whether it's going to grant a visa or to naturalize a Russian citizenship, a Russian citizen um, itself. So that geopolitical, geopolitical side of citizenship and globalization gets highlighted in this. And then, you know, it's, it's also a place you can think about the way that people are strategic. Um, you know, very often, you know, people without privileged passports tend to be strategic in terms of um, looking, looking for alternatives, whether they're looking for student visas or retirement visas, or even ancestry options to naturalize. Once, once Brexit hit Britain, for example, you know, so many Brits began looking for that Irish grandparent so that they could still get EU citizenship and retain that. So people are strategic about citizenship all the time. They separate their identity from their travel documents, and you know, if it's about getting rights and passports, that you know, people can be very pragmatic. But countries can be strategic about this too. So, you know, wealthy countries might compete for you know talent migration, the highly skilled, etc. But microstates, which are not going to get you know whatever, um, you know, the the mega talented can compete on this level of citizenship in this global market um, as well. So, in that sense, it's it's an interesting way of thinking about what are those dynamics of globalization? How is it that country borders still matter? Um, and how is it that people find ways around them
1: as well? That, I think, is a brilliant summary of why I started this by saying that this is a fascinating book. Um, so thank you for kind of giving us such a nice conclusion. Um, but before I let you go, although this book has literally just come out, um, it obviously is no longer on your desk. I'm sure you're pleased with that.
0: <laughs> um, I actually opened up the box and I got to see the real book just today. So oh, how perfect. There we go. It's as an object rather than as a you know, manuscript on my computer.
1: Well, now that you no longer have it as a manuscript on your computer, might there be other things on your computer that you're thinking of working on, whether or not they're a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of?
0: Yeah, you I you know I must admit that you know doing the work in this field has been absolutely fantastic absolutely wonderful travel opportunities and I'm kind of continuing in that vein by beginning to work on digital nomad visas. Um, That world, and I found it interesting, it it arose during the COVID pandemic, a lot of countries began, a lot of people began working as digital nomads, moving around, not being at home, thinking about what are my options. And a lot of countries began issuing digital nomad visas, which I found interesting, too, because, you know, we often assume that migration or immigration is people moving from country A to country B. But with digital nomad visas, countries are kind of saying, no, we, we want these successful well trained well paid people to come in for a bit and then we're going to let them go again and then you have these successful employed you know people working in tech startups or whatever from the computer who are then choosing among countries as well so it's no longer just a case of countries trying to enclose and bound and embrace populations in a way it's countries competing for desirable populations for a bit and letting them go. And those desirable co- populations kind of looking at countries, assessing their options and looking, you know, in a very kind of mobile world. And that kind of shift in terms of, um, you, you know, when, when we all grew up, we probably went to school and there was maps of the world, this kind of Mercator projection of like these five different colors and countries with clearly defined borders, encaging people, or embracing people in that sense. And I'm, I'm interested in how that's breaking down And the forms of mobility and global mobility. And that's why I'm continuing on with these digital nomads. It's the next Mm. uh, step.
1: All right. Well, that sounds fascinating. If that becomes a book, we'll have to have you back to tell us all about it. Um, But of course, in the meantime, listeners can read the book that's just been delivered to you today, titled The Golden Passport, Global Mobility for Millionaires, published by Harvard University Press. Kristen, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about your book.
0: Thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.